All right, guys. So this morning is a good time to be a first-time visitor to Salt City because we're starting a new teaching series, so there's nothing to catch up on. And we will be going through just a few verses in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a pretty famous passage, normally called the Lord's Prayer. And we're basically going to ask this question, how do I pray? Now, in a parallel passage in Luke chapter 11, the disciples who have been walking with Jesus for some time go to Jesus, noticing that he has this amazing prayer life, and they say, teach us to pray. And as I was thinking about this series, I thought, which one of us doesn't at times want to ask Jesus that question? I've yet to meet a Christian who is satisfied with their prayer life. I've never met somebody who I'm like, how's the prayer life going? And they're like, it's unbelievable. It is amazing. I think I've got this prayer thing figured out. So it's good for us as Christians to go back to the basics and to rethink and to relearn what we think that we already know. And so what we're going to do is open up a familiar passage and ask the Holy Spirit to show us some new things in that passage. So we're going to actually read Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Matthew 6, 5 through 15. It'll be on the screens. Feel free to follow along with me. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. Now, one of the things that you'll notice right off as I read through this passage is the number of times that Jesus repeats the word Father. Now, to Jesus' original audience, this teaching would have been radical. In fact, Jesus was accused by the religious leaders of his day for calling God his father, because in calling God his father, they said he made God his equal. But what Jesus is saying in this passage is really important for us to understand, He's saying that the basis of a great prayer life is our understanding of who God is. If you don't grasp that it's possible 
for you to know God with such intimacy that you would call him your father, you can't begin to pray. So in other words, we have to get our doctrine right. We have to understand who God is before we can get our practice right. In other words, to pray rightly. So here's sort of the big idea that is going to pull this message together. We pray because God is our father. We pray because a right relationship with God is possible because of what Jesus has done. We pray because Jesus teaches us to pray our father. Okay, so we're essentially going to look at this passage in three different points, and we're going to see that there's two wrong ways to pray, and there's one right basis on which we pray. So let's take these one at a time. First point, a wrong way to pray, praying to be seen by people. Praying to be seen by people. Again, Matthew 5 verse 5 says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So the Pharisees were these religiously elite people. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus has a lot of correction for the Pharisees. Pharisees were experts at using religion as a facade. So if you were to have walked around Jerusalem in those days, you would have seen Pharisees at the temple and on the street corners, in other words, in the most public places, praying loudly. And you might have thought, wow, those guys really have their prayer lives together. And your mind might have wondered, too, if they can pray like this in public, what must their private prayer life be like. But Jesus, he wasn't fooled by the facade because Jesus knew their thoughts and their motives. He knew what their secret prayer life looked like and he knew that their secret prayer life actually didn't exist. And so he calls them Hypocrites. Hypocrite means a pretender, or actually literally, it means an actor in a play. So here's what Jesus says the Pharisees were actually doing. They're putting on these long robes. They're leaving home. And maybe on the way to that street corner or on the way to that temple, they're rehearsing what they're going to say. They've got this religious language that they're going to use. And maybe they even have like a talk to God voice. Dear God. He's saying, I know what you guys are doing. You're pretending to pray. 
You're pretending like you know God. But the reality is, you don't know God at all. Now, let's not be too quick to judge the Pharisees. Say, I can't believe that they would be such hypocrites. I'm just glad I'm not like them. Because it's so easy for this Christianity thing to become a facade. For us to come here and pretend one thing when the reality in our life is something that's very different. See, what Jesus is contrasting in this passage is hypocrisy versus reality. Having a true and real relationship with God. Now, it's one thing to really be an actor in a play and pretend to be somebody that you're not. It's actually considered a talent. It's another thing when your life becomes an act. I remember when I was in high school, we used to have cast parties at our house for musicals and plays and those sorts of things because both my sisters were involved in the musicals and plays. And so you would go to the play and there were these very talented people and they would be in this play and they would play these parts and you would see their talent on full display. And then after the Saturday night show, we had lots of land and place for a bonfire and all that. So we'd have a cast party at our house. And let me tell you something, these people who were just hours ago acting on the stage were completely different people at my house. They were totally pretending to be somebody that they weren't on the stage, which is the definition of acting, right? That's a talent. But when you begin to apply that same principle to your Christian life, and you're one person at home, and you're a totally different person in public, specifically related to prayer, you become a major part of the problem. You become a hypocrite. And it becomes, I speak from experience here, virtually impossible to live with yourself. So let me ask you the question. Is it really you here today? Like, are you really wanting to hear from God's word? Are you really wanting to let go of your sin and to follow after Jesus? Or when you just raised your hand in worship, when you just sang, Father, you're all that we need, were you just pretending that that was true? Were you planning in your mind to continue in the sexually immoral relationship that you're in? Were you planning on continuing to drink on Saturday night and then come to church on Sunday morning? Are you planning on continuing to stay in the patterns of anger and lust and greed that you're in? Or are you really saying yes to Jesus? Because here's the thing. You can trick me. I'm not that discerning. You can't trick Jesus. 
He's reading your mail. He sees everything that you do. And he wants to bring us to a place where we can have right relationship with him. Because that's the place where we will actually find joy. Okay, maybe your issue is not as much with this religious facade and pretending. Maybe you're like, I'm really not that good at that. But maybe instead of praying to be seen by people, you're actually praying to be heard by a false God. So instead of pretending like you're worshiping the true God, you've actually just torn a few pages out of your Bible. I don't like that part. I don't like this part. So I'm kind of going to create God in my own image. Are you praying to be heard by a God, not the one true God? Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now at this point, Israel is occupied by the Romans. And you've maybe taken a mythology class or something like that, but you know that the Romans worshiped a pantheon of gods. And so you had the God of the sun, you had the fertility God, you had all these different gods. And what the Gentiles would literally do is they'd go to these various temples and they would go to their gods and they would come before them with basically this babbling. And so this phrase that is translated in our passage, empty phrases, is actually an onomatopoeia. An onomatopoeia is like the word sizzle. The word sizzle is describing something that's happening to bacon in a skillet, but it's also the sound that the bacon makes. Sizzle, right? Well, this word could best be translated the word babble. So they're basically going to the temple, and it's become such a ritual to them to go to these various temples of these various gods that they're basically going there and they're not saying anything at all anymore. It's just empty phrases and empty words. And the reason that the Gentiles are going to these temples and they're saying empty phrases and they're saying empty words is because their gods aren't real gods. They're deaf gods. They're blind gods. They're not the God of the Bible who made people in his own image. They are the gods of people made in their image. I'll never forget visiting one of the largest Buddhist temples in China. And I remember walking around this Buddhist temple, and there were large statues made out of yak butter. And I just remember seeing these people come into this temple and fall down in front of their gods and babble. 
I remember thinking, it's yak butter. It's like falling down in front of a tub of country crock and thinking that it is going to answer your prayers. Christianity is not pluralistic. Christianity says there's one God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and every other religion on the face of the earth is a demonic lie. That's not popular. You go out into our culture and people want to say, well, all the religions are basically the same. Every road leads to the same God. We all have the same morality and we're talking about the same God. So what's the big deal? Why don't we just all agree? Why don't we have these ecumenical councils? And why don't we just all come together and have prayer meetings? Because after all, religion is a good thing for society if everyone just sort of keeps it in balance. And what Jesus says is, no. Not if you're going to pray to me. Krishna's out. Allah's out. Buddha's out. You have to choose. God the Father is the one true God. Now we might start to think, okay, good thing that we are good, clear-headed Westerners and we don't bow down to idols and have false gods. Let me propose to you that actually in our culture, there is a false god. And if I were to name this false god, I would call him or her the materialistic prosperity genie. And the materialistic prosperity genie likes to dress up in Christian clothes and carry around a Bible. So it's possible that you think that you're praying to the God of the Bible when you're actually praying to the God of American consumerism. And so you might come to the God of American consumerism, you might say, dear Jesus, I would love to have a big house and healthy kids and a beautiful wife, gorgeous husband. I'd like my life to go well. I'd like there to be no pain and no suffering. And if you'll do that for me, then I'll come to Salt City Church. I'll read my Bible five minutes a day, and I'll pray before bedtime. Let me tell you, that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the pattern that Jesus lays down for us to pray. The God of the Bible will not serve your American consumerism. He will not serve the God of money. He does not want you to have your best life now. He wants you to take up your cross daily and to follow after him. Has prayer become a dear Jesus thing for you? I don't mean using the phrase dear Jesus is wrong. I'm just saying, has it become something that is essentially just mindless babbling 
telling God what his agenda should be for your life and just letting him know that you actually intend to stay the God of your life and if he would just sort of leave you alone and give you what you want, that would be great. Okay, so if those are two ways of wrongly praying, praying to be seen by people, this hypocritical way of praying, or praying by, to be heard by a false God, how does Jesus in this passage call us to pray? Here's how I'd summarize it. We are praying because we are seen and heard by our Father. We are praying because God is the ultimate reality. Let's read a couple scriptures, sort of the other side of the coin of the passages we've already looked at. Matthew 5, verse 6, and Matthew 5, verse 8. So 5, verse 6 says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And Matthew 5, 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So the anecdote to these false ways of praying are to come before the God who sees, who hears, and who knows everything. And who has the audacity to call himself our father. In other words, he's both more close, more intimate, more loving, more caring than we could ever imagine. And he's more holy, he's more big, he's more perfect than we could ever imagine. Now, before studying this passage for the sermon, I realized I'd never studied this passage in its context. Did you know that Matthew chapter 6 follows Matthew chapter 5 in the Bible? It's funny how it works that way. But this example of Jesus teaching us how to pray falls in the middle of a sermon that Jesus is giving called the Sermon on the Mount. And just before this section, in Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus summarizes the sermon thus far. And he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And before that, there's two of the most convicting passages in all of the Bible. Jesus said, if anyone even looks at a woman with lust in his eyes, he's committed adultery in his heart. He says, if you've even been angry with somebody, not explosive anger coming out, but in your heart, you've committed murder. Jesus says, this is what it means to be perfect, like your father in heaven is perfect. It means that even at the level of your motives and desires, 
you are godly. Do you still want to be seen and heard by God? Do you want him to see and to hear everything you do? Or would you rather have God be kind of like I am sometimes with my kids? So my wife gives me a hard time because I come from a long line of focused men. Got any other focused men in the room? Incredibly focused. My dad raised his hand. <laughs> That's true. Um, but I can literally be reading a book in a chair at my house and have a child three feet away from me screaming my name and I don't hear them. And my wife will be standing in the kitchen and she'll be trying to get my attention. My kid will be trying to get my attention and I'll be enjoying a good book. <laughs> Cup of coffee. It's a great talent to have, actually. It's amazing. And sometimes, this has actually happened with my kids. They will actually, they've learned that this is how they get dad's attention. They grab my face. <laughs> they will grab my face. I have vivid memories of this. And they'll get right up in my face and be like, Dad! And it doesn't even sound loud to me in the moment. I'm just like, oh, hey, what, what's up? And then my wife's like, they've been screaming your name for seven minutes and 37 seconds. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, the hard thing about having a dad like that is that it's hard to get their attention. It's not hard to get dad, God's attention as our father. He's close. He loves us. He's attentive. He's all powerful. He's ever present. He's with us. But the difficult thing about that is that he has a perfect standard. He's holy. Which means he sees and he hears and he knows everything that you've ever done. You can't deceive God. You see, the reason that we run to hypocrisy and we run to false gods is because we know that in approaching the one true God, we will be held accountable. I recently read this, and I think it's very true, that the threshold to a relationship with God is repentance. In other words, if you want to come into relationship with your heavenly father, you have to be willing to be honest about who you are. Forgive us our sins. Isn't that what Jesus says? See, you're a father. You're holy. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our sins. Which Jesus is not saying pray this exact prayer all the time. He's saying this is the pattern for your prayer, which means every time that you approach God, you have something to repent about. You want to pray? Are you ready to be honest about who you really are? Are you ready to tell God what he already knows? To agree with him that there's a lot of junk in your life? That you're not even who you want to be? That you're imperfect? Are you ready to get 
specific? What would give us that kind of confidence to come into God's presence? How could we boldly approach God even though we are so far from perfection? We have to understand that in this passage, Jesus is occupying a priestly role. See, the priests in the Old Testament would go into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, the throne room of God, only once a year. They went in to represent the people. God is so holy. He's so set apart. The New Testament says something amazing, that Jesus, as our high priest, can actually bring us into the throne room of grace. Yes, by teaching us how to pray, but ultimately by laying his life down on the cross for us. Without the shedding of blood, there is no removal of our sin. And so Jesus died on the cross for our sin. And so now, according to the book of Hebrews, Jesus is our high priest. This is what scripture says. Specifically, Jesus or Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's the good news. It is not on the basis of our goodness or our righteousness or our obedience that we approach God as our father. It is on the basis of Jesus' goodness, Jesus' righteousness, and Jesus' obedience that we approach the father. He can bring us into the throne room of God's grace. And we can be absolutely sure that although we are presently sinful and super messed up and we struggle with anger and lust and a host of other sins, we can be sure that when we come to God with brutal honesty that he will actually accept us. Isn't that what we're made for? to be both known and loved. What our culture offers us is to be loved without being known. The Bible says you can both be known in the depths of all of your depravity and loved at the same time. Amazing. That's the good news of the gospel. So let me answer one pastoral question. And part of the reason I want to answer this question is because it's something I've been wrestling with. Okay, so you believe that. You're in relationship with God. You come into the throne room of God's grace. You present your requests before God, and God says no. Then what? How do you deal with that? How do you deal 
with wanting something so badly and God saying no. You guys know, this is the first time I preached since my son Jude died. So I attended my son Jude's funeral and I prayed countless times that God would heal him and God said no. So let me read for you my reflection on God saying no and I hope that it will be a help for you as you process your nose. Death feels like the end. The tiny coffin was perched on a green pad covering the dark pit. My four-year-old twin daughters cried loudly, piercing the warm summer air. One of them wailed that she would never see baby Jude again. Five months of agony followed by this. Countless prayers from countless saints had come before the throne of grace for God to spare my boy. God said no. The lid to the coffin was now sealed with glue. Jude's little body, clothed in a gray and white striped shirt, gray cords, and fuzzy gray boots, lay trapped beneath, motionless. Death had spoken. I stood silently around the small white prison, surrounded by family and friends, as my good friend Mark read God's words. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And I believed. Not that this sowing would not be deeply painful. Not that my son was vaguely in a better place. Not that all of my questions would be answered in this life but that in the blink of an eye, after my precious boy was lowered beneath the Minnesota soil, he would rise from death. I believed that this lowering and this bearing and this palpable horror was preparing for me an unimaginable splendor. This weak, decaying, powerless, seed-like baby boy would one day bust out of this very grave and shoot to the heavens like a hundred-year-old oak tree. Seeds become oaks. Natural bodies become spiritual bodies. Dead babies, unexpectedly lost, become resurrected splendors. And one day, in the not-so-distant future, I would lay eyes on my imperishable son. This thought darted from my mind to my heart like lightning. Nothing in this so-called life is imperishable. What glistens fades away. Moth and rust destroy. Tragedy strikes. Long, full lives end in hospital beds, writhing, then dying. It all comes to a bitter end sooner or later. And so, just the promise of an imperishable son, a son who could not die, filled me with such longing, such peace, and such wonder that it brought my mind and heart to a previously unimaginable clarity. A spiritual perception of humanly imperceptible reality flooded me. What no eye has seen what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. 
One day, my son Jude would stand before me in indestructible brightness. I would look into his big brown eyes. I would delight in his unforgettable smile. Every tear I would shed on the long road of grief, trusting grief, hope-filled grief, would matter in the end. All things new, no more tears, an impossibly majestic reunion, glorious gain. To lose him and to see him again would be greater than to have never lost him at all. This seemingly frozen moment of time was not the end of my hopes and dreams. Death was not the last word. Death was only the dark side of a beautiful story, a story that some people scoff at, but that I deeply and humbly bow my life before. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I had pleaded with God for five months to spare my son. He willingly gave his son for me. Jesus asked God to spare him. God said no. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Jesus suffered an indescribable horror on the cross. His father looked on as he died. He breathed his last. He was buried. God knows what it's like to stand beside the grave of his son and weep. God knows my pain through experience, and he is the author of my hope. Jesus was in that grave for three days. He became a weak, decaying, seed-like human being. But like a seed destined to die and become a redwood of fairy tale-like proportions, Jesus died to become the firstborn imperishable son. He died to never die again. His life is eternal. It is on this son that I rest my future. Everyone who delights that Jesus' bloody death was for them and that his resurrected life was for them will live forever. Fittingly, my son Jude's name means praise. A lifelong reminder that we always have this otherworldly good news to sing about. And so, in my darkest hour, I stood with my wife, Melissa, our five living children, and my family and friends around Jude's tiny coffin, and I raised my hands to the God I love, singing, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. Come, Lord Jesus. See, when God says no, it's not the end of the story. We are part of the greatest story that has ever been written we can come before the throne of grace with confidence, not that God is going to answer our prayers how we want him to, but that he is going to answer our prayers in the best way possible, in a way that will blow our minds in the end. Let's pray. Father God, I submit my life to you again. Whatever it costs us, whatever you want us to lay down, whatever sin you want us to give up, would that conviction not just come for a fleeting moment, but God, would you lead us to forsake our old life, to live in the newness of the life that you have promised to us? to live in a reconciled 
relationship with God our Father and to seek to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, to live lives of obedience. God, would you lead us to repentance, a repentance that the world looks at? They say, I've got to have that. I've got to have a clear conscience like that guy. I've got to know God like that guy. Would you change our lives, God? In Jesus' name, amen.